0: Germany's social market economy combines free markets with a strong welfare
1: state. It becomes the social democratic party. Yes, we can. Education, education, and education. Hello and welcome to the Centre Think Tank's podcast, the Centrist podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Lloyd, the former Liberal Democrat MP for Eastbourne from 2010 to 2015, and again from 2017 to 2019, former Parliamentary Private Secretary to the Secretary of State for Energy and Climate Change from 20, in 2014, and the Liberal Democrat spokesperson for Work and Pensions from 2017 to 2018. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. Good afternoon. Hello, Will. Good to be here. It's great to have you on, Stephen. Um, So the first question that I'd like to ask is to do with some articles that um, Centre are currently running. Um, We're currently running a series of articles looking at why people consider themselves centrists. Um, Why do you consider yourself one?
0: Uh, I I would uh, say that, to me... Centrism uh, also encompasses moderate. So I would call myself, a, uh, or would have called myself, a moderate centrist politician. The interesting thing, there was a poll recently that uh, came out, I think it was Ipsos, I can't quite remember, uh, where it asked uh, uh, the people who took the poll their views of, of certain political positions what were people's views of left, right, centre, etc. And the interesting thing is the word centrist wasn't favoured. And I think that's probably because normal, ordinary folk don't really know what centrist means. Uh, however, what I also notice is that uh, a substantial majority of them considered themselves moderate. So to my mind, centrist actually is uh, a, a moderate position. Um, and what do I mean by that? I mean, if you take me as an example... I would say, uh, having been in business many years I went in politics, I'd probably call myself right of, of centre on a lot mm-hmm. of economic issues, but left of centre on a lot of social issues. Uh, so that sort of puts me uh, broadly in, in the centre of the political spectrum, which uh, a lot of people would define moderate. Mm-hmm. Um and I suppose a lot of that's to do with small-l liberalism in the sense that uh, the small-l liberal, uh, I don't think, consider themselves to be terribly tribal. What they're interested in is what works. Uh, while quite often someone on who would call themselves very much of the left persuasion uh, will never see anything good coming from right of centre and likewise someone quite often on the right of the perspective will never see anything good coming from the left. To me, that is just crazy because it, it means that tribalism and ideology uh, uh, is put higher than uh, actual outcomes, uh, which to me is is just daft. And interesting enough, uh, I found that most... Ordinary people, I hate the word ordinary because it all sounds pejorative, I'm going to call it normal people, people yes. not like you and me who think politics all the time but just get on with their lives. Uh, all they're really interested in is, is what works. They're mm. much less fixed on labels than politicians are. Um, uh, and, and that actually, to me, fits what would broadly be defined as a centrist position. We're interested in what works and we're not that fast, whether it comes to left, right, center, or whatever.
1: It's it's interesting um, your answer because it reminded me of a a, a bit um, from the the final series of The West Wing, the debate episode between yeah. Arnold Vinick and, and Matt Santos, when um, Arnold Vinick uh, attacks Matt Santos for using the term progressive, and you know says that. Um, why have you stopped calling yourselves liberal, you're calling yourselves progressives now? And Matt Santos gives this rather um, impassioned defence of of liberalism. Do you think that sometimes um, people in particular political parties, you mentioned tribalism there, are afraid of using terms like maybe centrist or liberal because they don't want to be characterised as being similar to um, other politicians who've, who've used that label? And they, and they want to try and make a, a distinction between themselves and, and, and some other politicians.
0: I, I think that's a very, very good point. And uh, like you, I, I'll, I'll give a, a puff for the West Wing. If any <laughs> listeners haven't watched it, younger listeners, please do. It is outstanding writing. It is just brilliant. Um, but in a way, the challenge they have in America, because of the right wing and the Tea Party mm. and Trumpism, which is Tea Party gone on steroids, if that's possible, <laughs> Uh, quite a lot of folk in this country might not be aware that in America to be called a liberal is defined as an absolute insult Mm. which is crazy, it is crazy but believe you me in America for an awful lot of people it is uh, 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 as bad an insult as they can use and I guess the point that Aaron Sorkin who you know was the writer of, of the West Wing, the point he was trying to get over in that episode, which was brilliant, uh, was that it is seen as such an insult for the mass of people in the middle in America Mm. that politicians who would really, and are really small l or large l liberal, shy away from having that label pinned to them because they know it is, or they fear it is fixed in the mind of so many normal, ordinary American voters is an insult, like, you know, communist in the Red Scare McCarthy era, yeah. that they fear it. Now, alongside that, you've got others who very bravely and deftly uh, and defiantly call themselves liberal all the time, which I respect. But I also know that if they're politicians, they represent very, very liberal democratic areas. Mm. So they can afford to do that because their voters aren't, normal, ordinary American voters. The the sadness of all this is uh, a, a, a word liberal, a political creed liberalism, which I'm very proud of, and I, I think has a tremendous uh, history and successful history since the 60s in, in America. Uh, now, politicians are frightened to say that they're liberal. So that's why they started using the word progressive. And I mm-hmm. think that's a sad thing, I really do. Uh, it's not as bad as that in this country, definitely. Mm. But I think some fear it, which is why they're using the word progressive. Uh, and that's a shame. I think we should take that word back and take that that uh, value judgment back and wear it proudly. But would I do that if I was an American politician in a normal democratic area that mm. wasn't uber liberal? You know, the honest truth is, well, I probably wouldn't because mm. the right wing, the hard right wing in America have demonized that word so much that it's, it's, it's a tough label to carry. And I think that's very, very sad. I also think it's demented because, of course, it's completely inaccurate. But yeah. politics, you have to deal with reality as opposed to uh, uh, what we like things or how we would like things to be. So it's tricky. Mm.
1: On that issue of um, dealing with reality, during the EU referendum, you were a a Remain supporter, uh, Mm. but when Eastbourne voted to leave, you accepted uh, the results Mm. of the referendum. Why did you decide to take a stand like that when, I'm guessing, it created tensions for you um, within your own party, within the, the Liberal Democrats?
0: Uh, it, it was very difficult. Um, it really was, uh, uh, and I could see the way things were going. That ultimately, it may well cost me my seat, uh, which it did ultimately. Um, the reason is actually very simple. Funny enough, it, it's not a deep ideological reason. It's to do with with honourable behaviour uh, in the run up to the referendum. I, I'd lost my seat in 2015, as you mentioned in the intro, and in the, in the referendum actually took place in the intervening period when I was back to being a parliamentary candidate again for Eastbourne. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, went to three or four different public meetings, big public meetings, 200-plus people being there, uh, advocating Remain. And I, I've always been a Remainer just mm-hmm. simply because it's economic logic. Um, and they were difficult meetings. Eastbourne's a Brexite town, bless it. It's a seaside town. Uh, And at those meetings, as I say, 200 plus, they were probably 95% Ukipi Brexiters at those meetings. I kid you not. I may have had four or five brave Remainers sitting in the corner, the rest were howling Brexiters. Uh, It's only after we lost the referendum that the Remainers really got fired up. Prior to that, they weren't. And I always remember that. Um, but I, I, at this particular meeting, it was in the town hall. There were a couple hundred people there. And I was arguing for Remain. And I remember there was a chap uh, who I know. I've been in Eastbourne a long time. I've knocked on thousands of doors. A lot of people know me. I know a lot of people. there's a guy who stood up who I knew, raging Brexter, ironically married to a Pole, but, you know, the, the, these... You, you just give up thinking rationally around uh, uh, Brexit. But anyway, and I remember he said to me words to this effect. He said, Stephen, I know you, known you a long time. Uh, we disagree a lot of political things, but I know that if you say you're going to, you know, he basically said, I know you, Stephen, I respect you, you're you an honourable guy, whatever. And he said to me, he said, in the referendum, if you, Remainers, if you lose, will you do as, a little bit of paranoia, but he said, will you do as always happens with the establishment if they lose, will you just insist we have another referendum until the public get it right? And that question hit me quite hard because between you and I and the gatepost, that's what we did do. Hmm. We did it in Denmark, we did it in Ireland when the public got it wrong, in verse the establishment said, no, we're going to have the question again. Now, I didn't think things through, I grant (laughs) that, to the ultimate conclusion, but I thought, you know what, he's right. So I remember saying to him, I looked him straight in the eye, I remember him to this day, and I said, you know I'm a Remainer, you know I believe it is economically uh, daft to leave the European Union, but you also know me, so I will give you my word that if we, the Remainers, do lose, then I will accept the result of the referendum and I will support whatever bill the government puts through to leave the European Union. Uh, now, to be honest, at the time, I didn't think we'd lose, you know, <laughs> hand on heart. Uh, but I thought, no, I'm going to give him my word. And I gave my word. And then sure enough, we lost. And that put me in a pickle. It put me in a pickle intellectually, because I think that leaving the EU is... Bad for the United Kingdom, but it also put me in a a position where when I started my political journey, when I went into politics or decided to go into politics in the year 2000 or what have you, uh, I remember making a promise to myself that I would keep my word if I ever succeeded as a politician, come what may. And the reason for that wasn't being pure, because I'm not pure, it was because I recognised even then that a lot of the public had lost faith in politicians' promises, Mm. Fair or unfair, I know and knew that they had lost faith. So that made me decide, okay, I gave my word, I'm going to stick to my word. And it was difficult. I mean, the pressure was enormous, absolutely enormous. Mm. Um, But I gave my word and I kept my word and I I voted for the blimmin' exit bill more times than <laughs> Boris Johnson did kind of amuses me a wee bit um, and then, when it came to the next general election there's a a, a a generally understand perspective that when you come to a new election you you know you've, you've mm. kept your promise, the slate is clean, you say what you 're going to stand for in the mm. election, so I kept my word, voted for this in bill four times, albeit I have to tell you, if if Theresa May's bill had gone through, bad as it was, we would probably be in a better position now. But that's Mm. an argument for another day. Uh, So essentially what I decided to do, now I'm going to keep my word. It's important, even if it makes it very, very difficult for me. Mm. Uh, And I don't regret that. And then I don't regret uh, when the election was called. I was able to say, okay, I've kept my word. I voted for it four times. Now the election, Now that uh, that's over and the election has been called, I believe I've kept my word to the town. So I'm now telling you that the slate is brushed clean mm-hmm. and I'm standing as a Remainer, knowing that that would probably lose me my seat. Yeah. So I believe that it was the right thing for me to keep my word. Whether it was a good idea for me to give that yeah. promise, that's for others to decide. Yeah. Um, uh, but it was the right thing in my judgment to keep my word and then it was the right thing once I've kept my word and there was a new election call for me to fight as a Remainer, even though I was between you and I well, and anyone listening <laughs> pretty sure in a town like Eastbourne that I would lose my seat. Mm. So I sleep easy at night. But truth be told, I'm pissed off in the <laughs> sense that I know that if it wasn't for Brexit, I would have won the seat. You know, no. But no. thats I think you take your decision, you take responsibility, and I don't regret that, mm. but I don't half regret the mess we're in now.
1: How do you think we're going to get out of the mess that we're in now? Do you think that um, the relationship between the UK and the EU is going to eventually evolve into... Rejoining the EU, or do you think we're going to have some sort of like Norway arrangement? Or how do you think our um, relationship with the EU is going to progress as time goes on?
0: Well, I've retired now, so these are purely my views and not the parties. I'm still <laughs> but I'm, I'm no longer an active politician, so this is very much my view. Uh, I'll ask you a, a question that is partly a question, will, and partly polemical. Uh, if you were the EU, Would you have us back? (laughs) So you and I know that we're a bloody nightmare. And it's the English, it's not the Welsh, the Scots or the Irish, it's the English. Logic or illogic, we have been a pain in the backside to the EU for the last 30 years. So if I was a French politician or a German politician, And this is my view, well, not the parties. Mm -hmm. I'll stress that again. If I was a French politician or a German politician or a Dutch politician who basically are very supportive of us, but if I was them and we came back, the English really, came back and said, we want to join the EU, one, I would partly want to say bugger off. And the other thing I'd say, and this is where it gets tough, and I certainly believe that the French would do this regretfully, I believe that the terms would be... Shocking Hmm. because we've burnt our boats. So I personally don't think for the foreseeable future they will let us back. However, because of this awful situation in Ukraine with this dictator Putin and, and what have you, clearly it has brought to the fore the importance of security issues and UK still has compared to a lot of other European countries a very very substantial uh, armed services and a consequence all this just happened in the last month or so of Ukraine is I believe that we will continue and in fact grow our security uh, partnership with the EU because they need us and we need them So I think from a security perspective, that relationship will actually grow, and I think that's a good thing, frankly. On the rest, on the logic of the economy, the logic of trade, uh, after Johnson's gone, which may be tomorrow or two years or whatever, and if the Conservative Party becomes a half-pragmatic, sensible party again, which it may not, but if it does, then I or Starmer wins, which is quite possible. Um, then I think a more serious discussion will be had along the lines of Norway or the EEA. Mm-hmm. Um, if Johnson and the hard right uh, uh, Brexiters still run the Conservative uh, or, or are still in the government and still mm-hmm. a, it's a Conservative government, then we will just keep stumbling towards this ridiculous list trust view that we're important in, in the world. And I hope that doesn't happen because that would just be terrible. So I'm reasonably hopeful if a sensible government takes over next time, perhaps Starmer or perhaps Starmer with us in a minority agreement or what have you, then I think some constructive creative thinking around some sort of Norway or Switzerland option may be on the table. I hope so for the sake of us economically. However, I think any party that advocates us rejoining the EU will get an absolute hiding outside the cities and the university Mm -hmm. towns because one of the other things i've noticed with the opinion polls like you will i'm sure i follow them very closely mm-hmm. yes the majority significant majority of people now see that brexit isn't working but when a question is asked do you want to rejoin it's still even stevens because people have had it mm. whether that's logical fair or right is irrelevant politics is about delivery so I think there's a chance that a pragmatic trade related improvement alongside what Norway and the others have may happen with the next government, unless it's the Tories again, and then we just will have to continue being idiots from the outside, totally.
1: I'd just like to um, turn now to the um, mental uh, health paper that Centre. To- uh, published not too long ago. Um, you, you wrote the, the forward to that paper, to Pushkin's paper, and you subsequently um, appeared as a member of the panel on mental health, the, the panel that I hosted, funnily enough. Um, you mentioned in that event how loneliness affects older people. So as we come towards the end of the pandemic, well, hopefully come towards um, the end of it, how do you think we start to tackle the issue of loneliness in old people.
0: I mean, that that is such a good question, and I also, I mean, I thought it was an exceptional paper. I, I really did. I thought it was excellent. It also came up with an awful lot of solutions or proposals, which is very encouraging. Uh, and again, one of the things where my thinking has moved on is that post lockdown, again looking at opinion polls, it is clear that. A lot of younger people, because I think of lockdown, uh, the percentage or the numbers of younger people who also say they feel much more lonely now than they did two years ago, has gone up significantly. Mm. So uh, unbeknownst to me, because sadly I'm no longer young, uh, I wasn't really as aware as I am now how lockdown has affected the younger generation as well. It's been quite extraordinary the the data so i i think it's a big issue generally now it's not mm-hmm. not just for older but to answer your question around uh, older people uh, that's always been a problem uh loneliness because of isolation if your family moves away etc um or your peers start dying off you know mm-hmm. uh, and it's obviously been exacerbated by by lockdown um i think from the older people's perspective I think we a lot of charities a lot of organizations know about the issue and they know what to do and they try their best to do it and that is by getting uh uh, outreach services to go and see older people to keep an eye on them befriending services all those sorts of things they do work there's no two ways about it I've seen it with my own eyes um uh, I think that needs to uh, uh, I think that needs bigger support, so mm-hmm. I personally think that uh, the government through the DWP or what have you uh, needs to actually put that in as part of their outcomes that x percent of uh, uh, their budget actually goes towards enhancing and supporting friendship services. Mm-hmm. Simple things like that. Yeah. I don't mean that you have a member of staff being forced to go and see five older people because that just doesn't work. You've got to want to do it. Do you know what I mean? Yes. But if you take Eastbourne, there's a lot of uh, charities across all ages, but there are a number of organisations working with older people. One of them started by a chap I obviously worked with when I was the MP and I helped him get it off the ground. And The charity is called Just Friends. Now... I remember when he came to me about four or five years ago, uh, uh, his wife had died. I mean, he was in his early 80s then. He's one of these very fit people, tremendously healthy. But his wife sadly had died. She'd had dementia and she'd passed away. And he was very lonely and he decided to do something about it. So he started Just Friends. And Just Friends, when he came to see me, was very clear. This isn't about romance. It's about company. It's about... Uh, uh, getting out there to older people in within and across Eastbourne, saying that you can come on a Wednesday to join everyone for a cup of tea and coffee, uh, events would be organised, etc. Uh, and I thought it was a great idea, I really did, and I certainly agree with them that there was a need. If You fast forward four or five years, uh, um, He's now, Just Friends, now has about 500 members, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, and I've been to a number of their events, uh, uh, particularly when I was the MP, uh, and I keep in touch since because he's a you know nice chap. Mm. Um, uh, and the events, first of all, they're about 80% female, which is quite interesting. Mm. I think that's because more often than not, men die earlier than women. I think that's possibly one reason. Well, I would be one reason. Um, uh, and what struck me with a lot of uh, these good folk who who go to these events is they just want company. Mm. It is, now I know you're young and believe you me, you probably think sex stops at 30, it doesn't. But nonetheless, these aren't romantic things. Mm. They're not about come to an event and meet a partner at the age of 80. Uh, it's about just company. Uh, and, and if that's in Eastbourne, that must be the same across the country, you know. So that really emphasises to me how, how debilitating loneliness is. The other interesting thing about it is it's shameful. It's embarrassing to admit you're lonely, because if you admit you're lonely, if you think about it, you're admitting to the public, I don't have any friends or whatever. Mm. You know, so there's a whole set of, of, of emotions around loneliness that, that I think uh, are, are very, very hard to crack. So that's why I don't think the state can fix it by mm. social workers going in and saying, hello, dear, hello, you know, <laughs> are you all right? Because that, in a way, makes you feel even smaller.
1: Mm.
0: You know? yeah. uh, so I think charitable organisations, networks, outreach are the, the key certainly for older older people. Now, let's look at younger. Now, this this is what I was saying. It's been a real eye-opener for me. Um, that lockdown seems to have exacerbated it so much. So what I would ask is perhaps a similar approach can also be done by charities or organisations beginning to think to themselves, Okay, what about outreach to younger people? But you have to handle it very sensitively. Because you really do. You can't say to a bunch of young people to say, "Come and have a cup of tea and coffee and talk." to You know that. that yeah, yeah. I don't know about you, but when I was young, if I was lonely, I would never do that because that kind of would make it even more embarrassing. So, yeah. I can't design that because I'm an old fart now, you know. But uh, I certainly think that's something that younger people and perhaps the centre, our own chari- our own uh, uh, lobby group, pressure group, whatever, think tank. Sorry. Can put some thinking around. Okay, clearly this is an issue for younger people because of lockdown. Is what can we do to come up with the sort of solutions that we can copy some of the solutions that have been used for older people, but tweak them so that they're relevant uh, and acceptable for younger people? But it's it's clearly appears to be as much of an issue now for younger people as for older.
1: Mm, absolutely. Um, we're coming towards the end of the podcast, Stephen, and it's been fantastic to have you on. And I do have, however, one final question. Um, now, recently, only um, uh, yesterday, a couple of days ago, um, the Oscars uh, occurred. And, of course, the Oscars is um, traditionally a, a, a film event which in, involves uh, actors and directors, etc., cetera, um, receiving films. Now, I wondered if you could choose any actor, um, past or present, alive or dead, uh, to play you in a film, who would you pick to play you in a film? I wouldn't expect that question. Um,
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Okay, God, that's an interesting question, Will. Um, Let me think, let me think. Uh, uh, Lord. I've never even thought of that. One of the things to do as a politician, albeit retired, is you actually—I'll give you a tip for any listeners who are going into politics—is if you do decide to do it and you really decide to go for it and you know fight and work, become an MP or whatever party, have a good think before or once you're selected as a candidate uh, to to. Come up with a whole series of answers to these sorts of questions. <laughs> a... I actually have it written somewhere. You know, what's my favourite song? What's my favourite? This, yep. but I've never thought of this one. Uh, right. Well, I'll, I'll let. I suppose what I would say is, um, in my youth, will uh, mm-hmm. before I really went into business proper, I was actually an actor. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I was an incredibly unsuccessful actor for a number of reasons, one of which I had no talent, and that tends to get in the way. Uh, I did a bit of telly and a bit of film and a bit of theatre, and I reached the point uh, uh, where I I I was always out of work or or out of acting work. I was a waiter. I washed dishes. I did all the things you did. Uh, And I thought to myself, Uh, or I saw quite talented people who are also out of work. And I decided that if they're out of work and I have no talent, I need to change profession, first thing. Second thing, the other reason I wasn't a good actor is I was never interested in playing someone else. Quite a lot of really good actors. I've worked with Alec Guinness, you know, top, Mm -hmm. top people. And the fascinating thing about them is quite often they were quite quiet and quite introverted, and then they would take on a role and be stunning. Mm. And I thought that was really interesting. Uh, this at all when I was in my mid-twenties, and I thought about it more and more, and then I realized that the other reason, other than the lack of talent, I wasn't a good actor, was that I'm comfortable in my own skin, and I like playing me. Mm. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean, yeah. another way of putting it yeah. is I'm an egotist, but, well, you're far <laughs> too to say that. Anyway, <laughs> so fast forward 30 years or 25 years, when I then go into frontline politics, and I discovered, because I like playing me, that I was totally comfortable at talking to anyone and talking to a crowd of 500 and being the center of attention, because <laughs> I like playing me. Yeah. So, sadly because you didn't ask who my favourite actor or actress is, which I could tell you, you asked who to play me. So I suppose the best person to play me, if there's ever a film about me, is me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry Matt. That. That's the truth.
1: <laughs> no, no, I think that's a great answer. It's, certainly, <laughs> it's <laughs> certainly not the one I was expecting, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, there you go. Uh, thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Stephen. If people want to find out um, more about you or, or follow what you're getting up to, uh, where should they go to to find out go more my, about you?
0: Go to my Facebook. Uh, I, I, I. You can pass a message on to Torrid. Unfortunately, I've been locked out of my Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, apologies if he's DM'd me and I haven't responded. I, 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 I was hacked, and I personally think I was hacked by one of these blooming Russian bots because I was putting up a lot of pro Ukraine stuff. Mm-hmm. And, cutting long story short, I locked out of Twitter and I can't remember what my password is. So they didn't let me in. So, forget my Twitter handle. <laughs> I've started a new one, but it's only got five followers. I'm yeah. not, not interested. My Facebook is 17,000 followers, 15,000 from Eastbourne. Uh, follow me on Facebook if you're interested in, in what I'm still up to, because I'm still very involved in the community and mm-hmm. I'm very fond of my town, even if they were terribly Brexitish. I'm very fond of my <laughs> town. Um, uh, uh, and so that's where, if anyone wants to see what I still get up to, then that's,
1: that's the answer. Excellent. Well, thank you once again for coming on the podcast, David. Thank you, Will.